Good morning. If this is your first time here, welcome. Uh, we're uh, doing a series called The Problem of God. And we've been looking at questions and, um, um, and hopefully providing answers to uh, some uh, thoughts on Christianity and faith and why we believe what we believe. Today, I will be talking about probably the hardest uh, <laughs> sermon of the series, Does God Even Exist? Um, so I'm not a scholar, so you probably forgive me because I'm not a, I'm a preacher, but not like, uh, anyway, that I told, that was supposed to be funny, but no one laughs. <laughs> I will laugh at myself, I will laugh at myself. <laughs> I'm so bad. Um, okay, let's dive right in. So does God even exist? I think typically, um, I think a lot of times, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, the question might not, might not be something that we think about. It might not really be something that we um, might be interested in because part of it is I think living in our world today there are so many things we can be distracted by so many things that has our attention right busy with work busy with kids so many things and the last thing we probably tend to do is think about <laughs> the mysteries of life and even when we do think about it we tend to be indifferent ap- apathetic or just let it just you know slide away just i got things to worry about right and like i said i think um often it is the case is there are other things that seem to get our attention our career right it's a very important part of our lives um we spend most of our time working, so we spend a significant amount of time thinking about work, thinking about making money, thinking about climbing the ladder. Oftentimes, we're thinking about ourselves, me. So when we think or have a conversation about, does God exist Oftentimes, it leads us to ask the wrong question. And you know, when you ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. I actually think that question itself, does God exist, is a wrong question, is a flawed question. Because in the question is the belief that you can actually prove that God exists. As a human being, we're saying when we ask that question that we can actually prove by our limited means to figure out whether God exists or not. And I think it's flawed because, one, we're limited. We're humans. We're mortal beings. And two, we're trying to uh, prove whether an infinite divine being exists or not. 
I think those two things are at war with each other. Finite being versus an infinite being. Can a finite mortal human being actually prove that God exists? It reminds me of this short story I read by Ted Chiang um, called the story, The Tower of Babel. He writes about, he's, the, he's actually the one that, I, wrote, I don't know if you saw the movie Arrival. He wrote uh, the short story about that. But in this other um, uh, short story, he writes about the Tower of Babel. Obviously, it's a take on the story, if you know the story in Genesis about Babel. And guys were trying to find out, find God And then they built this large building trying to get up to the sky to see and discover if they can find God. But they were only, they get get up all the way only to find themselves again. It was this cyclical event. They went up to the sky and somehow ended on the ground. I think we actually do that even through our humanistic instruments, our minds, our scientific instruments, we try to discover if we can find God, but we only find ourselves. Because the finite can only find the finite. Again, my point is the idea that we can discover God through our humanistic instruments and our humanistic means is misguided. It reminds me of the Wizard of Oz when they were trying to find the Wizard of Oz and they saw this big scary, he looked scary and everything, but behind that big scary monster was a puny little guy. That's what they found. I think the scientist Pascal points out that no one can prove God or prove that there is no God. The reality is whatever you believe about God is purely an act of faith. However, I think we can actually come to a sensible, rational conclusion that God exists. I think there are clues in our world, there are clues around us, that leads us to believe that he exists. And Paul in Romans chapter 1 gives us this idea. Paul was one of the apostles and he, he, he was uh, one of the early uh, Christian leaders that traveled around Rome and the Roman Empire to actually proclaim this gospel of Jesus Christ. And here he's writing to the Roman church. He's saying this in verse 18 is behind me. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. What is he saying? It's like God's invisible qualities are shown to us 
We can see it. We can see it when we look at each other. We can see it when we walk in nature. We can see it when we look at the skies. God's invisible qualities are made known to us. So much so that we are without excuse. So this sermon is not just for any of you who might be a non-Christian. Honestly, this is a sermon for Christians. Because what I've come to see and what I've come to believe is that we, those of you who are Christians, we say we believe in God, but yet our actions tell a different story. We say we believe in God, yet we turn, we, 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 yet we actually live as if God does not exist. So here's how I'm going to show you. Here are the three clues that I want to extract, extrapolate from what Paul is t- telling us about what God has made known to us. What can we see? First, I think we can make, um, I can show you that through morality, the whole idea of morality, we can see the, that God is with us. Through cosmology, we can see through the looking of the skies and the stars above we can see God exists. And then lastly, through um, a personal witness. So I'll start with morality. So hang with me. I might throw science words at you, <laughs> but I'll break it down. <laughs> okay, let's get, get to it. Um, I think one thing about life is that we see... Clearly, there's a strong sense, at least I believe, a strong sense of moral obligation. Um, whether we do it or not, whether we, uh, uh, whether we know it, yeah, whether we follow it or not, you know, we know it's right to be honest, right? We know it's, it's good not to lie in our taxes. We know it's good to be fair. It's good to be kind and generous. If you're walking down the street and you see someone, you know, tip or fall over like I do because I'm clumsy, you try to help me, right? You, you see someone and you say, no, I, oh, you need help. We know that's the right thing to do. Just like we know when we see evil and atrocities happening around the world, we know that is wrong. There's something wrong with that. We know when someone lies to us that it's wrong and evil. It's wrong to be selfish and corrupt. It's unjust. We know it's wrong. But I would argue, I think, that the fact that we know this is, is good or evil tells us something about morality. Morality. That there's a moral obligation in our word. Whether we see it or not, we know that something, that when we see something good, that's good. When we see something evil, that's evil. I don't know if this ever happened to you. Sometimes I I come across people because I meet a lot of people at different times during the week. And sometimes I would meet with someone and I'm like, wow, you are, there's something good. Like there's, I can't even describe it. When I look at that person, I'm like, wow, man, I just want, my heart just pours out for you. 
We can see that in each other. Right? And then maybe you see your coworker who is obviously trying to take your position or, <laughs> or supersede you, and you're like, oh, this is evil. <laughs> Something is wrong. Something is wrong. It's unspoken. It's like, it's like this unspoken agreed upon reality. Where does it come from? Where is it from? I think what I'm suggesting to you all is that the only explanation is God. God gives us. God has shown us those invisible qualities of himself to us. I remember I was early in the morning um, going on the PATH train. I like to tell a lot of PATH train stories, by the way, because <laughs> it's just like, it's like you want to see good, you want to see evil, go on the PATH train. <laughs> um, I was going on the PATH train, and one morning, crowded, annoying, honestly just wanted to go back, but I, I needed to go into the city, so I'm standing, and it's one of those times where um, you, everyone cannot get on the train. You have to wait for the next train, and then you move up you know, to the line so that people are moving back behind you. And, you know, you know, there's a 33rd train that's going to 33rd Street in Manhattan. There's the Wall Trade uh, Center train that's going to Wall Trade Center, obviously. I'm waiting for the 33rd train. It comes. I, we couldn't go in. I move up. Train moves. Wall Trade Center train comes in. And someone walks ahead of me because they have to go in that train. So he goes, but he doesn't go on the train. Because you know what he's trying to do. He's trying to skip the line and get ahead of me. And I'm like, what? And everyone looked and I'm like, what's wrong with this guy? And I, I had to say something. I was just like, dude, come on. We're all waiting for the train just like you are. Just follow the queue and it will be all right. You'll get on the train. And he said, oh, 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 yeah, yeah. And, you know, he walked away. <laughs> I could do it because I'm tall and, and bigger. So, <laughs> and so that's why I can do that. But we know that that's some, there's something wrong with that. That's not... It's not a good, everyone around there knew that that wasn't the right thing to do. So is this unspoken reality, this unspoken agreed upon reality that we all know that this is not good. That is the wrong thing to do. So, but. Of course, some people will argue that, well, that's kind of a cultural conditional thing. You know, you do that because that's, what, you know, you've been told or taught to do, and that's, and I get that. So because of that, some would argue that morality is subjective, it's conditional, it's culturally conditioned on us. Again, I understand why, because there's some things that obviously we, we, we could debate, debate about. Some of you like gambling, right, and don't think it's wrong, and some of us think, oh, yeah, no, that's wrong. I don't want to waste my money doing that. Some people think, well, it's good to uh, be a pacifist. And some people are like, no, it's my right to bear arms, right? So it's just like, ah, so which one is it? So, yeah, there's some gray areas when we come to think of morality. But then at the, at the end of the day, we know there are some firm things we know that should not be done, right? Crime against kids, children, crime against uh, a, a, a weaker person. We know that's wrong, and it's evil. Where did that come from? 
It didn't just come from the sky. It's there. Again, I would argue that God actually gives these things to us, these qualities to us for us to know that he exists. I'll give you an example. I read about um, a story of children in Colombia in the 1970s who were living in the sewers um, at that time. Children, kids living in the sewers. I mean, just imagine that, in the sewers. Why? Because there were gangs who thought those kids were disposables. They called them the disposables. They thought they were pests and venoms of society. So what did they do? They had to run, run away into the sewer. That's evil. We know that. That's wrong. A powerful gang Um, powerful gang uh, dehumanizing a weaker person in our society. That's wrong. So can we say that that's subjective, that it's conditioned? No. I think God gives us the quality, gives us the, the obligation to morality. Now, it's interesting because I was just reading about, um, I think, the New Yorker, which is amazing. I'm like, thank you. This week they had an article about a philosopher, Derek Parfit, and um, he wrote a dense book called On What Matters, on Ethics, Morality. And he argues that actually, yes, morality is um, objective, that there is uh, uh, an agreed-upon truth that actually uh, helps us to tell what is right from wrong. And, th- m- well, why I'm saying this is because most other older philosophers would say, no, it's subjective. It's, it's up to you, whatever you want. But here's a, 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 a philosopher of our generation saying, no, it's, there's actually... He's actually an atheist, by the way, but he's saying, no, there is a moral obligation. Why? Because he sees the weakness in saying, in, uh, in arguing for subjectivity and morality. Um, and this is why he says, in particular, a, uh, a, a world that doubts moral obligation is not only misinformed, but is also dangerous. It creates a bleak society. But then the obvious question that I have for him is, where does this moral obligation come from? It's there. He argues we can just discover it. It's just like math. Like, whether you know math or not, it's there. It's true. One plus one equals two. He's arguing the same thing. Moral obligation is there. You just have to discover it. But then it leads us back to the beginning. Because whoever discovers it, whoever writes it, right, is now telling us that, no, this is my own morality for you. I don't know if that makes sense, but, but it's this cyclical pattern. But anyway, all I'm trying to say in this point is God. God is the only explanation that I can find that gives us reason to believe that moral, um, it, morality is objective. It's the only best explanation for moral um, obligation. That's the first point. Speed along. Second point. 
So we not only see it in morality, we also see it in cosmology. Um, Before I start this point, I actually want to read Psalm 8, verse 3. And he says this, When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? Human beings that you care for them. David is writing this wonderful psalm when he looks to the stars and he's saying, I see this and it reminds me of you. It shows me that you are there, that you exist. How can that be that you actually care for us, puny human beings? I think what we see in our world today, especially in the exponential advancement of science, Many have come to believe that science has finally proven the death of God. You know, God doesn't exist because science has proven it. Right? Um, The popular atheist of our generation, Richard Dawkins, um, he would argue that the evolutionary explanation of the species actually defies and denounces the idea of a God. And many have taken on this belief, right? We've... Whether we, even if you watch the debates or, yeah, there's this belief that science is somehow also in contention with religion or with Christianity. So the idea is science has now moved beyond the archaic belief of God. It's moved the modern man away from God. But, but I think it could be argued the other way too that maybe the pendulum is swinging us towards God. But science is actually proving that God exists. And often what happens, especially if you listen to their debates, they almost every time overstate the idea that science is, no, science, that's the end. God is dead. But I I think we can actually show it moves the other way. And one one uh, kind of fundamental thinking is when we think about the Big Bang, right? It's interesting because before the Big Bang, there was uh, actually like just 100 years ago, the idea of how the universe started was based on this model they call the steady state model, meaning that the universe has always been. It's just there. It's always been there. And this was just 100 years ago. And then uh, a Belgian priest, uh, Georges Lamate, he actually proposed the idea that, no, the, the universe is expanding. So it means that there was actually a finite point. There was a beginning when the universe started. And I think there were atheists like Fred Hoy who were, argue, who, they were arguing, no, no, that cannot be. Because the implication now is that there's a, a theistic explanation for the beginning of the universe. And because there's a huge, there was actually a huge reluctance to believe in the Big Bang Theory. And one of, that was one of the primary reasons for that. But I like what this notable um, philosopher says. Um, he says this. says, uh, Justin Breeler says, If the universe had a beginning to its existence, and if everything that begins to exist has a cause, 
in our experience, things don't pop into existence for no reason, right? A cup doesn't appear from nowhere, and you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> a cup. It doesn't just pop up from nowhere. Then the universe, too, must have a cause. A compelling case then can be made for the nature of that cause, for time, space, matter to come into existence. The cause itself must be material, timeless, and incredibly powerful. There is only one clear candidate for that job, God. The universe had the beginning. There must be explanation. The only explanation that seems to make sense is God. And then when we look at the idea of fine-tuning, it's just the, the, the fact that the universe exists, the idea that the universe was created to hold life, the chances of that happening is so huge. Trillions and trillions and trillions. It's almost impossible, right? It's like throwing dice uh, a trillion times. Like, okay, which one is it going to be now? Now, a trillion times. <laughs> Imagine. They say that just one miscalculation of just the fundamental mathematics when it comes to gravity, when it comes to physics, if there is just one slight adjustment, we will not be here. We will not be here. So can we say this is by chance, by luck? Again, I think the only explanation is God. And as David said in the psalm again, when I consider the heavens. This is David writing thousands of years ago, far away from all scientific explanation. He's looking to the stars. When I consider what I see, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? human beings that you care for them. And even when we look at each other, like you're here by randomness. You exist out of nowhere. Can we say that? I don't think so. I think God has an explanation for that. And lastly, um, witness probably the most important again I, I, I think the question is not really a matter of does God exist the question is where do we see God has he revealed himself and I think we see that revelation through Jesus Christ might sound convenient, but I think Jesus Christ actually offers to us a powerful explanation of God. Jesus Christ himself is a personal testament, personal witness of God to us. This is the infinite God revealing himself to finite human beings. And the only way he can actually do that 
is by writing himself into our world. The only way that God could actually reveal himself is by putting on human form. Absolutely brilliant. So brilliant. Again, think about it. When you think about the immensity, the powerful uh, 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 powerful demonstrations of our universe, when you think of a black hole, when you think of the radiation of the, the pulverizing, pulverization of stars, when you think of that mass of power, how can you imagine God even more powerful? Even more powerful that the only way that we can truly see God is if he came to our world. And he did. Through Jesus. He is the lens through which we can see God. He is the way, the truth, and, the, and life. No man can see God. No woman can see God. But through Jesus, we see God. And here's, I mean, that's the beautiful thing. Jesus came into a world. Just imagine with me. He came into a world... You know, during the time of just the Roman Empire, powerful, strong army. Now, any human being, if they were to reveal that they were powerful, how would they normally do that? Through war, through conquest. Why? Because typically... The source, the, the, the thing that we often care about is more influence and more power. How can I conquer this Roman Empire that's so evil? Power. It's the only way. But Jesus does it the way we, we don't even want, the way we don't even expect. He came as a human being and he came as a servant. That's how God reveals himself. And that's why I love so much Corinthians 1. It says he confounds the powerful with weakness. He confounds the, 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 uh, the wisdom of our world with foolishness because it doesn't make sense to us. Jesus comes in weakness, and that's how we see God. So we can look at Jesus when we see even his teachings upside down. Even the disciples of his time, they were like, no, we want, you know, there was one of the, the disciples of Jesus who was a zealot, and was like named Simon the Zealot. You can already imagine they were thinking Jesus was here to take over in power. Jesus did not do that. He took Overpower by giving away power. And then secondly, we see that in his work, where he not only died, but he revealed just how powerful he is when the Spirit of God awakened him to life. The humility of Jesus is a testament to the fact that God 
confounds us. God is stronger than we are. The weakness, his, in his weakness, he is made strong. So here's the thing, and this is where I want to close in this. Because when we see Jesus, we see God. When we see what Jesus did, when we encounter the living Jesus, it transforms us. It changes our lives. And it has huge consequential implications for us, not only in the here and now, but even for eternity. So my friends, here's, here's, what, I, uh, here's what I'm suggesting, suggesting to you. If God does exist, the implications are enormous. They're huge. And we can't just settle for the regular life. We can't just settle for the everyday life that the world throws at us with all the distractions, even in our busyness, even in our work, even with our phones. It means that we ought to turn to him. We ought to trust him. And we ought to give him our lives because he gave his life for us so that now we can see him, we can be with him. Amen. Let's pray as the worship team comes up. Father, um, I pray even today for my friends here, for myself, that even as we, that you would just help us to see you, even those invisible qualities that Paul talks about. To witness you, even as we hold our children, as we look at our spouse, as we... um, even look at our coworkers that sometimes annoy us. As we walk down the streets and we pay close attention to the trees and the, the flowers and the great weather that we see you. Help us even today to see your son Jesus that you have brought into our world as a witness, as a testament of who you are. Even in this moment, I've just asked that we just maybe be silent for about a minute just to just to reflect.
true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Why? Because we have so many things on our calendars. Because we have so many things going on. We can't recognize you. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And John proclaims this. He says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and full of truth. God, I pray that we, even through your son Jesus, will see your glory. And that we will proclaim, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son, full of grace, full of truth. That it may change the way we live, the way we think, the way we act. And the way we speak. Jesus, then we pray. And we say, Amen.